Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists. The interesting thing is we finished a project that we put cover crop in instead of fallow. We broke the field into thirds, and we looked at the winter wheat crop following that. And mm-hmm. the, the idea is, well, the cover crop section of the field will actually have more water stress on the winter wheat. So the winter wheat yields after the cover crop should be lower. Mm-hmm. It just so happened we had one of our biggest droughts mm. um, after this cover crop experiment. Uh-huh. And I started looking at the response, the cover crop, the winter wheat after the cover crop was more vigorous. <laughs> you could actually see it in the satellite imagery quite clearly that, that the, the NDVI was better, it responded sooner. Those soils that are more organic carbon rich, they've actually, uh, they have a more cover and they, they, uh, they're more resilient to heat stress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They probably infiltrate more water. So they mm-hmm. probably actually, even though you might have a crop growing, they might have more infiltration and they might more resilient um, those soils might be more resilient, particularly in, in extreme years. That's a small taste of what we have in store for you today. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, how scientists are solving research issues, and what tools are helping them better understand measurements across the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Today's guest is Aaron Brooks. Aaron is an agricultural engineer and professor in the Department of Soil and Water Systems at the University of Idaho. He obtained his bachelor's in agricultural engineering with a soil and water engineering emphasis at Washington State University, and then went on to get his master's from the University of Minnesota and doctorate from the University of Idaho, both specializing in hydrologic measurement and modeling. Aaron's current research focuses on the management of ecosystems through the combination of field experiments and modeling. And today he's here to talk to us about his work in the fields of hydrology, environmental engineering, and agricultural engineering. So Aaron, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So today we wanted to talk to you about all of your various research interests, but definitely we want to start out with your background. And we want to know how you got into this this intersection between soil science and hydrology and and modeling. Yeah, thanks. Um, Yeah, so it was... Growing up, I was um, actually had a lot of exposure to uh, both my mom and my dad's side of the family had both agricultural and forestry backgrounds. We both have farms, and my uncle was a dairy farm, which really kind of got into agriculture. Mm-hmm. And my dad was a math teacher and had his summers off, so I, I just got this love of agriculture. And my mom said, don't go into dairy farming because you'll never get married and you'll be tied <laughs> to the farm. So I figured I was good at math and I like agriculture and got me into ag engineering and, yeah. and really kind of that background, I think, um, really drove me. To, I really wanted to be connected with practical agriculture and forestry. I love, you know, fly fishing, hiking. I love that nature. And, I, and for me, it's the passion of what I do is really applied science, trying to take science to make agriculture, forestry, some of these industries economically viable. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, you know, we can do this in ways that preserve the environment and mm-hmm. preserve and make what we have here sustainable and actually available to the next generation. Right. So that's kind of the my research, really applied research, trying to make decision support tools from modeling side of things and, and uh, have it really well grounded in, in the landscape itself. Right. So was there any any other specific, I don't know, triggers or, uh, you know, crossroads where you're like, uh, I should go I should go this way as opposed to that? You know, I, I got hooked up early on at, at Washington State University um, in being the ag engineering. I, I worked a lot with Claudio Stockel, who was at the time actually working with Galen Campbell mm-hmm. um, on several projects and developing a crop model. And I just got hired on as an undergraduate just to 
help out his research projects. And it was just fun to go out and, and at that time looking a lot about evapotranspiration in the field and, and using um, instruments to track that. And I just got a love for research and um, found out, you know, once you graduate, there's research assistantships out there that actually pay you to continue to do right, this. And, right. and so I kind of got fell in love with this idea of, of this, you know, experiments and applied research to solve mm-hmm. problems. So that's kind of what kind of drove me into it. And I think for me, how it, the direction it took is really um, when I got my master's and I spent a couple of years at Cornell working with New York City's drinking water supplies when GIS came out. Right. And so geospatial modeling and, and targeting prioritization. And so and I continue to do that with some of my models is let's, let's target um, where the pollutant load is coming from. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we talk about 90% of the pollutant load comes from 10% of the land right. or 90% yeah. of the pollutant load comes from 10% of the time. And so really we have a lot of opportunities to target management to get the biggest bang for the buck and really here again, getting back to this applied science. Right, so. right. Well, I think it, one, of the, one of the cool things about having you on is uh, for our podcast, we like to hit lots of various you know, subjects uh, we have a, a broad, diverse audience who are doing everything from civil engineering to um, agricultural research or, or even, you know, farmers and growers themselves. And you've touched on a little of, of all of those. And so um, I, I think first, um, maybe we can hit, hit the your research into water balance studies and um, kind of what got you into that and, and what you're looking to, to solve there. Yeah, yeah. So... Originally, like um, I said, getting into environmental problems, the first thing you look is in the stream. You're right, and so you got some pollutant load coming in. And and when I was in New York, it was looking at phosphorus loading or actually cryptosporidium. Um, here in the Palouse, it's still nitrate loading. Sediment loading's always been a big topic right. here. And so when I got into this, is was a lot of understanding um, uh, studies where we actually put instrumentation in a landscape to understand not only the, the what's coming out of the outlet of whatever catchment or watershed or even field or have, but actually where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to start doing geospatial targeting, you want to know both distributed um, response, where it's coming from, and what's at the outlet. Right. And so a lot of my studies have... Um, a lot of them have involved stream flow measurements or edge of field runoff measurements, mm-hmm. and then couple that with point measurements, targeted measurements in the landscape where the soil moisture or um, water level, perch water level mm-hmm. fluctuations. Mm-hmm. And so one of the projects is kind of, I've been really excited in the last several years. I work here with the USDA ARS um, in Pullman on a project um, it, it, on the, what's called the Cook Agronomy Farm. Right. And this is the LTAR site, the Long-Term Agro-Ecosystem Research Site. And USDA has really invested a lot of money into long-term studies. Mm-hmm. And we want to look long-term impact of, you know, our soils are changing. Mm-hmm. pH is changing, organic matter is changing, and we're changing the way we farm. And so there's really important to have long-term monitoring. And so one of the projects I'm really excited about now is a project out here, just a couple miles from here, mm-hmm. um, halfway to Moscow, um, where we've put in some surface flumes um, to look at surface runoff. Um, uh, we actually have flumes that we've put in on drain tiles. There's subsurface yeah. drainage around here. And yeah. um, and then also we put in weighing precip gauges and soil moisture sensors. And then this, we have some paired catchments out there that we're looking at no-till versus conventional till mm-hmm. where we have eddy flux tower measurements. And so... Mm-hmm. 
really when you start thinking about trying to solve and understand water problems, it's really that water balance you want to get at um, that in this case, if you think of a water balance input output change in storage, we got precip coming in. We kind of good, good handle on that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have outputs in ET, which mm-hmm. we have a good idea of that we have subsurface drainage, we have surface runoff. Um, and probably the, the only thing that really the remaining component is deep drainage, <laughs> which is kind of hard to directly measure. Right. Um, but, there's actually tools that actually use some of the some of you guys's passive drain gauges to actually look at deep drainage to some extent out there right. as well. And so, it's really been uh, great. There's a lot of investment in uh, at the ARS and putting even AC power out there, which opens mm-hmm. a lot of doors to actually. One of the challenges of edge of field monitoring is your flumes have ice in them; they freeze up. Right. And so we were able to buy some flumes that actually have heat tape in them. <laughs> and so they actually, when a storm events happen in diurnal cycling, we have freezing at night. Mm-hmm. It actually thaws the flume out, mm-hmm. and um, so it's been really great to actually see th- these paired sites and actually have all this together to right. really look at that water balance. And I know the ARS continues to see that more long-term focus right. on water right. balance type studies. Right. So, so with when you're when you're, I guess, trying to trying to measure that w- the water balance flux. Um, what are some of the particular, I guess, measurements that you're looking at? What are the you know the inputs to that to that model? Yeah. So, um, like I say, well, for flume measurements, a lot of it is water level sensing. So, mm-hmm. so um, I, I like flumes because they're structures and I don't have to worry about the rating curves so much. And so um, trying to have some sort of water level sensor that's reliable. And and I've gone through actually either pressure sensors or bubblers mm-hmm. and you know the usgs on their stream gauges use bubblers to do that um uh for um uh yeah from the precip measurements um and here we have a lot of snow and so mm-hmm. we've done uh using some of the weighing precip mm-hmm. gauge products but mm-hmm. we've also used some of the, the products that you guys have come up mm-hmm. come up with and and some of the atmosphere type of measurements right. that we're using for the precip side yeah. of things so um you tie in water quality on this. So then we also then would tie in electroconductivity measurements. Right. And we actually, with the water balance, we can actually tie those pressure sensors into a data logger, which then we can use triggers to do water sampling. And mm-hmm. so we have auto water sampler. So when a storm event happens, it'll trigger this water sampler. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, we've used different brands of these water samplers to, to, to kind of get at this vent-based sampling. So right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned dealing with water quality there. Some, where can you get into a little bit more detail about some of the the, the projects that and research that you're working on? Yeah. In, that, in that realm. Yeah. So um, a lot. If you've been on the Palouse and uh, come visit, if you haven't been there, we have a very unique landscape. There's a lot of topography, and we've had a, historically a lot of erosion. Probably one or two of the most erosive landscapes uh, around the world mm-hmm. um, in terms of topography, especially in the 1930s, where uh, farmers came in and started tilling the ground using mold bore plows, plowing up and down a hill, burning their residue. And right. so we have some of the massive right. erosion. And so we farm now a legacy uh, of erosion, which has removed topsoil, mm-hmm. which has made our toe slopes full of organic carbon, um, which is great. It's nutrient rich, but our ridge tops are pretty depleted. Mm-hmm. And so the question is nutrient management. How does a grower go in and actually farm a landscape that's so variable? And right. uh, we've even done studies to kind of using soil moisture measurements and some of our models to actually say, actually kind of classify the landscape as an ecosystems. And you really can kind of think of a toe slope in the Palouse as almost like 
or I'm in a humid landscape. Hmm. It's, you mm-hmm. know, the water table mm-hmm. could be within a foot of the soil surface yeah. for half the year. Yeah. Um, there's really just, so you got this humid environment. Then you think of ridge tops, they're really dry. They don't store mm-hmm. a lot of water and they're windblown. The, pr- the snow gets drifted off. And so it's more of an arid environment. So right. if you think of, think of farming, so one of the things the Cook Agronomy Farm was set up to do is actually look at precision agriculture. Mm-hmm. So how do we vary fertilizers so that we optimize nitrogen mm-hmm. so that, you know, we're not leading to water quality problems or from a greenhouse gas perspective, N2O measurements. Right. And so um, in the process of converting to no-till, so we've done conversion to really low impact tillage, which will reduce erosion down, but has nutrient impact as mm-hmm. well. The, mm-hmm. the soils become more structured. You have more preferential flow. Right. In a landscape where we have drain tiles, you can actually have a water quality. You actually increase your water quality. Mm-hmm. The soil becomes more organic rich, is more nutrient rich, and mm-hmm. you, the, the microbial environment actually breaks down the nitrogen into nitrate, and then you start having more water quality problems. So essentially, <laughs> as these landscapes change, we need to understand how to manage them in those good ways, and actually, we can actually reduce our synthetic fertilizers down. And so one of the projects we worked on, and actually was early on, when you guys were bringing out your passive drain gauges, mm-hmm. um, we said, wow, it would be really great to understand nutrient fluxes, and particularly in these no-till soils. Mm-hmm. And so we actually put in uh, one of these drain gauges out in the landscape up in the Cook Agronomy Farm. And it's interesting, and I have a, a paper that will, will show this, is we put these drain gauges in, which you take an undisturbed core and then and pull it out, and then you put the coupling on it, and you, you can put the reservoir underneath it, and the pipe's coming up, so you can mm-hmm. sample the leachate underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, we took that core and pulled it out, and there was, uh, I think we counted 36, you know, pinky-sized macropores it was just amazing the preferential flow that's Uh going on in here and so then we end up doing is we would measure it throughout the year and say well how much what's the flux coming out Mm -hmm. um and what's the water quality coming out Mm -hmm. of it and some of the nitrate loading coming out of these you know typically the streams around here we get 10 to 20 milligrams per liter Mm -hmm. of of nitrogen we were getting up to 50 to 100 milligrams per liter and so you could certainly see that nutrients coming down Mm -hmm. Um, we actually did a rainfall simulation on top of it and trying to look at preferential flow. And what we found was really interesting. We had soil moisture probes in this core, but when we started raining on it, we could actually see bypass flow going on. We actually, water was bypassing where the soil moisture was not wetting up, but actually getting fluxes down really? at a five foot depth before we actually see this wetting front completely fill up the core. So wow. that was really enlightening. And, and, the, and those first pulses of nitrogen were just really hot in right. terms of their yeah. nitrate concentration. So yeah. really kind of using that, wow, we actually, some of these landscapes, the structures changed, mm-hmm. the nutrients dynamics have changed, and that's going to affect our nutrient load. And it really does op- open up opportunities for growers to really right. get into, well, I can actually drop my fertilizer, the time in the fertilizer, right. and that sort of thing that's going on. So I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's super important. So we're, we're, are, are those macropores basically from, are they, are they wormholes? Are they, is that root holes? Is it all of the above? <laughs> you know, it's interesting, and, and uh, you can actually see it in some of the pictures, is the, the, a lot of those macropores actually had a root going right down really? the middle of it. And it's kind of known, this, this drillosphere is what they kind of uh-huh. call the environment around a macropore, is really nutrient-rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> Worms is that a legacy of a long <laughs> right. time? Uh-huh. I mean, if you you know, hear the stories around here, and actually it's true. Our University of Idaho was one of the key ones. Is this giant Palouse earthworm that's around here? That that's right. uh, uh, yeah. that, and you, there's actually papers documenting you know, these worm holes going down hundreds of 
feet oh, down really? there. There's actually, it could be a major groundwater recharge mechanism. Yeah. I don't know exactly, <laughs> but it looks certainly like they're wormholes uh-huh. and they're, they're going down. Um, I don't know the timing of it, but that's it incredible. Is, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> wild. Yeah. Um, I, I think, and, and also just, just the fact that, uh, like you mentioned, um, the, the fact that, the, that, that flow is bypassing the soil moisture sensors, like they're, they're not reading that flow, but yet we're getting it down, you know, in the, in those drain gauges yeah. and those kinds of things. Um, I mean, is, is that something that is particular to what you were looking at or do you suspect that this could be happening in, in other similar um, agroecosystems? Right. Um, and I think that the rates that we were applying the rainfall at would be more of a, like an intense storm. Mm. And so I think those macropores trigger when the, the, the moisture content gets high enough. So I think if you were for an irrigated person, mm-hmm. um, if you're applying water as fast as you can, which most people do just to get the water in there, it, it's possible that you could have bypass flows going right. on. And it's um, which, you know, my background is looking at water quality from watershed perspective. Um, it can be really frustrating then. It's like, wow, how do we model this? Mm-hmm. How do we capture this? Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of actually in the last 10 years, I worked a lot with Dave Huggins and some other agronomists, which we started to use remote sensing to actually from remote sensing, NDVI and NDRE indexes, you can actually see nitrogen content mm-hmm. in the crop, mm-hmm. which I said, well, how many different of these drain gauges I have to put in a landscape to actually right. document a nutrient yeah. load. Yeah. Um, it'd be great if somehow um, we can actually look at it from a different perspective. And that's why I started thinking about nitrogen removal by crops. And, and really, if you start thinking the nitrogen in the soil, our biggest input is our fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if we can actually map the output, it's actually the nitrogen going to the crop, mm-hmm. wow, there's not a lot left that it's really depending on the water flux and what's the conditions of the soil. But, boy, I can get, I can actually start plotting nitrogen use efficiency mm-hmm. and so i started seeing okay and this is an index we use with with a lot of farmers now it's like um here we can actually see how much nitrogen removed from your winter wheat crop or your cereal crop and this is how much you applied and you just divide the two removed versus applied and you have a, a nitrogen use efficiency index right, and you right. start then start analyzing your your field after a growing year and it's like mm-hmm. wow boy on those those ridge tops where they're, they're all poor ground i'm mm-hmm. only using 10% of what I applied. Right. And they're really interesting. So I think some of the remote sensing tools and, and, and we've kind of worked with you guys a little bit on, on your NDVI sensors. Mm-hmm. And I know you've gotten some mm-hmm. of the Apogee sensors yeah. now that yeah. we had some of the SRS ones before, mm-hmm. and we've actually put those on center pivots in irrigated hmm. areas, put those on. And actually as the center pivot goes around, we actually seen changes in the, and the crop response oh, trying to understand nutrient uptake. And so you kind of start looking at problems from, hey, wow, remote sensing tools can really start telling us insights. If I actually finding my landscape now, because they do variable rate fertilizer, is having uptake efficiencies above 50% or mm-hmm. 60 to 70%, ultimately, hopefully, the water quality issues go away. And right. so this kind of, right. I, I started like, oh, okay, I can work with these other guys yeah. and really try to understand the landscape in a different aspect. Yeah. Now, you're talking about remote sensing. Have you ever backed out we, we we've had some some folks on here um some guests who have talked about you know working with drones or even satellite um imagery have you got into that and in working yeah. those into your models yeah we recently hired someone dr johnny lee in our uh department that's really uh does a lot of drone imagery and mm-hmm. and using artificial intelligence to try to analyze data analytics trying to analyze mm-hmm. patterns and looking at different wavelengths and what they tell us and 
from a practical farming perspective, and I teach a precision ag class, mm-hmm. satellite imagery, it's in instantaneous. It, it covers, and some of the imagery now is 10 meter resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, comes every five to 10 days. Mm-hmm. So from like a nutrient manager perspective, I say satellite imagery is, is actually, a, uh, actually a, a good tool. Uh-huh. It doesn't document the why or in detail of, of that doesn't have the resolution to document right. uh, disease, stress, um, and I think um, what we've been looking at is using drones to actually fly those a couple times in your field. And a lot of times your patterns in your field are consistent, which in mm-hmm. for, for managing a farm, you want to look at consistent trends. Actually taking drone imagery combined with satellite imagery has underst- then it helps explain what's going on in your field. It helps link the two and actually helps scale up. Mm-hmm. And so that's some of the things that we're looking at is how do we use drone imagery, understand these patterns on a very s- smaller scale, then have that direct maybe soil sampling or direct some tracking to say, well, what can we investigate what that is? And right. then, then help it interpret the satellite imagery we can use more for um, more yearly or even in, ease in season management of fertilizers right. or uh, some herbicides or right. something. Yeah. Right. right. Um, I think that's fascinating. Um, I, I mean, we could go on all day about, yeah. about this. I, I did want to kind of kind of back out because you've talked a lot about your your work with modeling and and like we mentioned, we have people doing all sorts of diverse um, research, um, but also just I wanted to ask you about about finding the balance between doing the field work and the modeling itself. I mean, we have we have people. There's traditions of being heavily reliant on one or the other. And I just wanted to know, like, yeah, how did you, how do you find yeah. that, that, that I, a proper marriage between the two? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, it's one of the things I really stress with my grad students is this balance. And, and I really like to impress upon them is doing both. Mm-hmm. I would love to have a, a project where they're actually out in the field and they're looking at structure. They're looking at actual reality and understanding spatial variability and understanding these preferential flows and, and really saying, oh, wow, these, this is the processes. I also want to do modeling because, you know, essentially in the end, if you can be experimentalist, and it's great for research, but if you're a practical applied, you're going to do problem solving, mm-hmm. we just can't measure everything. There's just right. no way yeah. we can get at it. And and so you can start to be experimentalist. It's like, well, at some point, if I want to make impact, I need to go to a model. Mm-hmm. And, and so that kind of gets you into the modeling side. But then you can get into that pit where everything's a model. Mm-hmm. I'll take whatever model off the shelf and apply it. And a lot mm-hmm. of models aren't appropriate. So having that background of, hey, actually, this is what I see. This is how I see runoff or soil moisture or something going on. And that model is really not appropriate for that. So having that create actually some more critique and, and some understanding of what's going into a model to help you select that model. Models, they can apply them almost anywhere. A lot of the, the tools and the data we have available, there's really great geospatial modeling we can have. Mm-hmm. And then you can fall into that trap that, yeah, well, we can do all this modeling. And, but if you're a field experimentalist, you're just like, there's no way a model can predict this. There's mm-hmm. no way that a model could capture all the spatial variability I see out here. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, this idea, and I try to impress upon them in my modeling classes is, is, you know, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Right, yeah. And so <laughs> how can the data we collect from experimentalists help us parameterize and get the, improve the accuracy of the model? Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting thing is when I start doing modeling, I tie modeling back into, oh, well, we think this pattern, the model's saying this pattern is happening. Do we see it in the data? Mm-hmm. And using the models to actually help interpret the data um, kind of feeds back on itself. And so mm-hmm. this, 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 I think it's a kind of a cycle. It's a feedback yeah. thing, experimental to understand reality, spatial variability, uncertainty, 
then helps us communicate our model and results because boy, if that model's going to predict stream flow to the thousandth mm-hmm. uh, decimal point, there's no way it predicts that well. Because right. <laughs> I know the reality <laughs> is that variable is, and then the feedback uh-huh. the, the data. So, right. Um, yeah. I think, um, I, I mean, do you have any any rules of thumb when it comes to, you know, model creation or, or determining a success of a model? I mean, there's, t- there's statistical tools that you can use to, you know, to gauge the success of a model, but but a lot of times, I, I mean, sometimes you can you can visually or you can understand we're getting diminishing returns with this model. We've got too many inputs, too many parameters. We need to kind of dial it back. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. There's a lot of amount of models out there, and with um, AI and and some of the data mm-hmm. analytics, you know, you can take whatever data stream, and the model doesn't even know what it ha- what it is, <laughs> and you can put some statistical analysis and try to simulate what's going on. Right. Um, that's great if you have one location with a lot of empirical data and you want to continue to do empirical data at one location. So it's almost taking data. But to really understand, well, well how does climate change? Well, what is actually converting to, to no-till going to affect in the long term? Right. It's a lot of these processes that you need to have a, almost a scientific understanding. So the process-based models. Um, some of the process-based models can get into really detail too. So mm-hmm. I'm looking at air entry potential mm-hmm. on a very specific part of a landscape mm-hmm. where we don't even know the soil variability that there's information is not there. Right. And so you can have models that are just over parameterized. Right. What I've found is some of the more simpler models actually can do a lot of that variability. They're understandable to actually stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are providing, and a lot of times all what stakeholder want are problem solving is Red, yellow, green. Is it is a higher risk here, a lower risk there? Mm-hmm. Um, spatially, is this more or less? And so sometimes we get caught up in chasing the Nash Sutcliffe efficiency or the R squared or whatever. <laughs> right. uh-huh. And from applied side, they just need some advice. And I think that there's a lot of we that these tools can provide. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing a lot with wildfires now, right, right now. Yeah. I'm doing some wildfire modeling where we're taking geospatial models and we can upload burn severity maps. And we've been working with Portland for a long time. And just last week, last two weeks, there the, the the drinking water where the Bull Run watershed where Portland gets their drinking water is burning now. Oh wow! So there's. Now there's this risk of uh, a pollutant load coming mm-hmm. to the drinking water reservoirs and all Portland gets their water from unfiltered water source. And so if we now have ash and sediment mm-hmm. and water quality coming to this reservoir, they want to know what do we can do now? Um, and one of the things you can do after a fire is actually put some mulch or wood shreds on. Mm-hmm. What we can do are the models. They can say, we can tell just based on soils and the hydrology, this is going to be a high risk of erosion mm-hmm. fly on some wood mulch here mm-hmm. i mean that's just something mm-hmm. you know and if you only have a certain amount of money this is the targeted prioritization right. approach right. and then we can then come back on, on more of a probabilistic approach and say we can run it through 100 years of weather data and actually get well there's a 10 percent risk that the sediment load coming out of the reservoir is going to be at this level and so mm-hmm. we can actually get probabilistic output we don't have to be absolute we know our models can't be but right. then it gives them a ballpark and they can make decisions based on yeah. that and so um yeah yeah i think i mean there's there's pros and, cr- and pros and cons to to like you said dealing with stakeholders who may not be in your scientific uh you know specialty or even in any of the sciences at all like you're talking about policymakers and and other other groups like that 
what are the, some of the things that you've learned as you've worked with these interdisciplinary groups um, on these various projects? I know you've worked on on projects with the Landscapes in Transition yeah. uh, project where you're dealing with all sorts of different um, researchers and scientists who have their different specialties. You're working with this Portland yeah. uh, project where you're dealing with people who are not in the sciences at all. What are some of your, your learnings and findings from your own personal experiences in those? Yeah, things? and a lot of it... Uh, for a while, and there's still a term that's going around, is best management practices. Mm-hmm. What are the best management practices? And a lot of times we're going into a, a watershed study. What's the best management practice? And we can, you know, I can use these tools and I can put in, I can say, yeah, this is the spot we need to do. This is the high erosion spot. Right. Um, but a lot of times I talk in my water quality class is best management also is social and economic. Mm-hmm. There's other factors out there that might prevent someone from doing something and so i think we need to take this holistic view of okay what's possible mm-hmm. um and i we could go in and say why that part of the landscape should adopt this well this might be someone someone a, a farmer to be farming some poor ground mm-hmm. is not making a lot of money doesn't have the capacity to respond to that and 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 so it's it might not be the perfect solution the, the better solution might be working with someone else maybe has maybe not as erosive of land but mm-hmm. maybe has the capacity to do that and so really understanding the culture of the, the people that you're working with what limitations do they have mm-hmm. like nutrient management um you know a lot of times they're they're farming big lands or they don't have the capacity on the 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 actually machines to do some of this and so trying to understand I mean, I love working with the farmers, you know, oftentimes a project, I feel like I learn more from the farmer than, than I give back to mm-hmm. him <laughs> or her. Mm-hmm. And so this, the, the more we can understand, well, this is the limitations I have uh, and this is what, um, and I can come back with my science-based solutions and say, okay, well, let's work together and understand that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Another example and I, um, is uh, I teach an irrigation water management course. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you think of an irrigation we have tools, we have soil moisture sensors, we have water potential sensors, we have weather stations, we can predict evapotranspiration. Mm-hmm. So, and then you do surveys of the irrigators and like how many people are using um, that sort of information to irrigate mm-hmm. from irrigation mm-hmm. scheduling. There's very few. Yeah. And it was interesting. Yeah. It's like, why aren't people using some of these great technologies? And then I want to start having more, you know, I, I teach to, to ag systems management, which are more applied, a lot of the kids in my class actually come from irrigated farms mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and they start telling me it's like you know our center pivots have a certain capacity to apply water we can't instantly apply water over an entire field mm-hmm. we're only applying water to maybe five percent of a field right. at a given time as you're passing and as you're passing through <laughs> and says guess what irrigation scheduling i turn my center pivot on mid-june and i don't turn it off till august and i'm still not meeting my crop water demands mm-hmm. and i started thinking, oh okay mm-hmm. so irrigation scheduling to a person with a center pivot, they have some limitations. Mm-hmm. And so really the irrigation scheduling maybe is, and what I, I do believe, and I have a grad student working down in uh, Southern Idaho, working with people on water quality implication of over irrigating, is we can make a lot of ground in the spring. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times that growers are over applying in the spring, they're losing some of their nutrients. We can actually become more efficient there. And that's where I think we can target growers with some of these tools right. and some moisture. And so it wasn't until I started getting interaction with people like, oh, okay. So the solution, this is where we need to target our tools and how we can reach out to stakeholders. Right. So right. 
Right. I know you, you've also mentioned that, that you've worked with, so in, in particular, we can stay with, with ag and with, with crop management practices. Um, you've talked about working with, with no-till. Um, I know you've done some work with, um, with uh, studying cover crops and other things like that. I wonder, yeah. especially, can you talk about cover crops? We haven't mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, and some of the in interesting yeah. findings that you've been getting there. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, and, uh, just recently in the last year, University of Idaho got uh, a $55 million Climate Smart grant, mm -hmm. which I've been asked to, uh, to help lead with Dr. Sanford Eigenbrode over there, mm -hmm. which is a real challenge, but a lot of the project is incentivizing growers to do more sustainable practices and really for a motivation from a soil carbon perspective, increasing soil carbon and reducing greenhouse gases. And mm -hmm. so some of the practices that we really want is increasing carbon is, is cover crops. Right. Um, there's a lot of great testimonials from the Midwest where they've done some really good cover crops have put in and that's been really successful here in the Palouse, our landscape or climate is different. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't get any rain in the summer, yeah, right. which is good for dryland, I guess, just so we don't want to have too much rain while harvesting wheat, but it's prevents us to, with doing some of the fall seeded cover crops. Right. And so, but there's so many growers out there that are really um, see the benefits of cover crop, crop, crop diversification, um, and trying to build up their soils again. Um, and so there's a lot of people investigating. So this was this landscape and transition project we've mm -hmm. done and, and actually looked at different climate zones here in the Palouse. We've put uh, cover crops out in places where typically have fallow. So now they're the growers to the point where they're really willing to put a, a, a cover crop in instead of fallow. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Um, which is a risk because that's right. your water storage for the next crop. Right. And so trying to document some of this. And so that's what we're you know, looking in this project. Can we get people to adopt cover crops? And mm -hmm. so one of the practical tools and, and ways we've been uh, trying to help growers in adoption of this is, well, each year is different. If we have a lot of June rains, you can keep that cover crop going. But mm -hmm. the question is, when do I terminate it? Right. And yeah. so uh, that's just one of the things that we've been working on is, and I currently have a Western SARE project. I'm working with Dr. Sanford Agenbrod as well as actually looking at termination of cover crops. And that's one thing I think soil moisture probes and actually irrigation models. So soil water models, we can track soil moisture pretty well mm -hmm. um, in this landscape. And mm -hmm. I think cover crop termination has a lot of great opportunities for us to help decision support on those. So it, but the interesting thing is we finished a project that we put cover crop in instead of fallow. We, we broke the field into thirds and we looked at the winter wheat crop following that. And mm -hmm. the, the idea is, well, the cover crop section of the field will actually have more water stress on the winter wheat. So the winter wheat yields after the cover crop should be lower. Mm -hmm. It just so happened we had one of our biggest droughts mm. um, after this cover crop experiment. Uh -huh. And I started looking at the response, the cover crop, the winter wheat after the cover crop was more vigorous. <laughs> you could actually see it in the satellite imagery quite clearly that, that the, the NDVI was better, it responded sooner. Um, and one of the things I think potentially could be happening out here, we need to understand it more, is those soils that are more organic carbon rich, they've actually, uh, they have a more cover and they, they, uh, they're more resilient to heat stress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They probably infiltrate more water. So mm -hmm. they probably actually, even though you might have a crop growing, they might have more infiltration. And they might more resilient, um, those soils might be more resilient, particularly in, in extreme years, right. flood years, right. drought years. On a common year, you look at, let's say, no-till versus conventional till or, or a cropping system more diverse versus the other, I think the yields are pretty similar. But I think, you know, in terms of we talk sustainability going in the future, climate change, 
um, how we restore our soils. I think some of these things we're going to start seeing more and more on these more mm -hmm. uh, extreme years. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm pretty excited about how do we get cover crops to work? When do we plant them? When do we terminate, terminate mm -hmm. them? And, and just love to see that the, the growers are hungry for solutions. Right. They really want that this yeah. to work. Um, and so hopefully the next five years of this project, we can start, you know, coming up with some solutions yeah. that integrate that. I, I, I mean, that, that's one of those things where, um, and we've mentioned this before, is that, is that when we're dealing with, with growers is, uh, yes, there, there's traditions of, of how to farm and those kinds of things. And maybe they're, you know, stereotypically slow to adopt new practices mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing. But at the same time, it's, um, it's, it's our human nature to, to do that, that cost benefit, you know, that, that risk assessment yeah. and say, um, just mentally, how much of a risk do I dare try this new thing? And then, you know, what if, like our models could say, oh yeah, you're going to have 60% success, you know, over the hundred years that yeah. we've been running this model. But that's, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a median value. And that's yeah. not necessarily going to say, hey, you might have these extremes where you're going to get nothing yeah. or you might have, you know, definite success and you're, you know, going to double your yield or those kinds yeah. of things. And so, um, yeah, being able to, um, I guess my, my question then would be, how have you been able to communicate with with those uh, with those growers and others to yeah. really to really help them see the potential benefits for implementing these yeah. new practices. I think one of the things that's really changed, and I talk about this in my precision ag class, is the historic imagery, the historic satellite imagery. Now that we have, we can tap into the last ten to fifteen years of of what's going on in a specific field. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to do is uh, talk to my students about is let's, let's look at the temporal stability. Let's, let's look at, and what, a lot of times I look at it, field scale variability. Let's compare the average, and you could think of NDVI on this mm -hmm. part of the field versus what the average is for the field. And then I just go back in time and say, is this consistently always lower? Mm -hmm. Is it consistently mm -hmm. higher? And what was the best year versus the worst year? We start seeing that. Um, and I think with that, understanding a grower can come in and be realistic about well yeah i understand one year to the next mm -hmm. it could be feast or famine mm -hmm. um uh but from a profitability perspective should i still fertilize to that great year every year or should i drop my rates just to say this is my realistic yield goal and right. actually in nine out of ten years um, I'm going to be making more money. Maybe that one year I'm going to have nitrogen stress on that part mm -hmm. of the field. And mm -hmm. so trying to get maybe a temporal analysis to help. I think some of this, you know, growers are hungry. A lot of times growers um, adopt a new idea and they do it the whole farm. It's mm -hmm. like, if this works, I'm going to do it the whole farm, you know? And, <laughs> right. and, uh -huh. and what I encourage is um, with remote sensing, some of these tools, always be a learner. Mm -hmm set aside so I, there's so many opportunities to on-farm experiments mm -hmm. and i say well, try it mm -hmm. do a trial and mm -hmm. convince yourself and do it over a couple of years and 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 try cover crops on a part right. and so it's not as high risk mm -hmm. you're going to learn from that and then slowly expand um, and i think that's where research universities i'd love to see the universities become more engaged with growers and mm -hmm. and some of the things with this new project we're going to make this we're developing essentially a geospatial farm management tool that we can use to, from a research perspective, uh, to, to, to upload our soil sample points or some of our water quality things. Um, but they actually can access some of the analysis we're doing with the models mm -hmm. and, and some remote sensing data that we can do that maybe they can't do and maybe then have them be able to you know, go into a tool and help us work together. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we can learn from them. This is what works and what doesn't work. And, and we can then demonstrate very quickly what worked last year. A lot of times the universities have a reputation of, oh, you get this, mo- this money. I, they, put, they use uh, my field and I don't hear from them for five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to become more engaged with growers in that way is let's, no, no, no. We have tools that we can come in and, and, and learn along with them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, and uh, there's a lot of growers that would love for us to engage in that way. Right. And um, community growers know, they know the good years, they know the bad years. And I think um, uh, talking to them realistically about that, I think using some yeah. of these tools is a good approach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, um, have you t- have you tested different types of cover crop? I, I was thinking, I mean, there's different, there's different types of cover pr- crop. You can talk about forage you know, cover, you can talk about, or like green manure, or, mm-hmm. you know, how you manage that cover crop itself? Yeah, yeah. So some of the people, um, you know, we have a dramatic climate gradient. And so people in near Moscow have a, you know, 25 to 30 inch precip zone. Mm-hmm. Really cover crops to them, um, really a, a real big benefit for them is actually growing a crop even during the winter fall seeded cover mm-hmm. crops mm-hmm. Um, because we just have so much water. Right. And they're trying to, let's use cover crop is a water management strategy. You just take some of the water out. Yeah. Um, also, it takes that nitrate out and converts it into right. organic matter. Right. And then essentially then as it breaks down in the next year, then it releases that nitrate back to the, to the, to the crop when the crop needs it. Mm-hmm. And so I think from that perspective, yeah, okay, so it's, it's a fall seeded cover crop. We want to get it in and, and we have the water out there, probably could get it in pretty e- a lot easier out there. And so that strategy is, okay, um, uh, is a fall seeded crop, you know, I can't have annuals that are going to, you know, not resist the frost. Right. And uh-huh. so then selecting winter peas or something like that mm-hmm. can endure the winter in the, in, in the dry areas right now it's water managed. Kind of the, the example I described before mm-hmm. is like, you know, it's really hard to start a fall crop. The soil is completely dry. Germinating anything mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. fall is difficult. The, the only reason we do winter wheat is because it comes out of fallow and there's a lot of moisture there right. after the fallow. So in that drier area, it's maybe a spring cover crop mm-hmm. that they can go in and, and they can do it during that fallow year. Mm-hmm. And then the, the challenge is the cover crop termination. Mm-hmm. And so um, varieties, how many different types? <laughs> right. There's mixtures. I, I don't know. I have a good understanding. There's, I think there is so much benefit to, to crop diversity, and I don't think we completely understand it. There's some mm-hmm. crops that work well together, having the legumes with the cereals, mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. brassicas. Somehow mm-hmm. there's certain combinations, and, and uh, the project we looked at um, with uh, Sanford Eigenbrod and his student really saw under winter peas, somehow winter peas, the arthropods respond to it. The macker, the the, the the pollinators, the insects, the uh-huh. all this actually responds to it in a, in a really good way. Uh-huh. And so, um, I think that's the science that. Yeah, it, that's true. I don't know. I know that's what, how do you model something like that? Okay, yeah. we're going to put gonna put the arthropod um, parameter in here, the pollinator right, parameter, right. and yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I wanted to go back or going back to, to watershed management. Um, just really quickly, I wanted to get some more details into you've been publishing recently on WebCloud. And so if you could go into a bit of, of detail on that water, yeah. um, water erosion prediction yeah. project and, and how, how it began and where it's at now and where you're adding to it. Right, right. Yeah. So 
Um, so this WEP model, so the Water Erosion Prediction Project, it was a model designed to replace essentially USLE or Russell um, NRCS planners. If you put a conservation practice in there, they need to document what sort of reduction in sediment. It's more USLE, and a lot of it was actually developed here in Pullman uh, with Don McCool, historically um, doing a lot of plot studies. And it's a good 30-year average erosion mm-hmm. rate. And so... But it's not a process-based model that understands dynamics or, or changes in intensity, and, and so it's not a process-based model. And WEP was one of these models that was supposed to replace that. And, and it's the here comes the politics of you got conservation planners not really to you know teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. You know it hasn't been adopted completely yet, although we're getting close to that. And so it's a really great model for me. It was understanding. Boy, I understand hydrology, landscape hydrology. Mm-hmm. How, how then does it feed back into erosion mm-hmm. and the Palouse has gone from a time when we used to have a lot of soil crusting, we have a lot of infiltration excess or Hotonian runoff we like to talk about with a precip's greater than infiltration rate now to a landscape like no-till where our erosion now is focused in draws and gullies. We have right. more gully erosion. Right. And so trying to understand that getting a tool, so WEP was one of those tools that could do both those types of hydrology and it was great for scientists. And for me um, in at, at Moscow, um, Bill Elliott was one of the, the, the people actually helped parameterize the WEP model back in the 80s, actually got a position at the Forest Service here in town mm-hmm. and said, we can apply WEP to roads. Mm-hmm. And so let's take this model. It does a single hill. We can think of a road like a hill slope, and we got a road obliteration. So it's a big point in time where, like, oh, can we use a model to look at erosion before and after? What's the reduction mm-hmm. in sediment load? How that? And so mm-hmm. it started with a more of a hill slope-based application. So taking a process-based model, putting it into a simple decision support tool mm-hmm. and they did a great job of putting web interfaces. So now you got three clicks. This is where I'm located. This is the soil type. This is the, the steepness of the road. Here's the field gradient. And essentially takes a process based model and does a very simple um, prediction, do a 30 year and you can do return period analysis. This is the 20% route probability of this erosion rate. So this is a start as a hill slope model. Um, uh, now Pete Robichaud is now the director there who's really big into wildfires mm-hmm. and so here post fire response what's the risk of this erosion uh, you know we know the hydrophobic soils come mm-hmm. in we know that the, the cover is gone so the erosion could be massive mm-hmm. and so he took that well let's do it as a simple hill slope mm-hmm. or maybe a small catchment and we'll do a decision support tool based on the hydrophobicity based on the burn severity um, uh, what can you expect coming out? And so they have all these hill slope tools. They call the FS web interfaces. You could go online. You can find these. I came in from a watershed perspective and mm-hmm. say, man, really is a great need for bigger scale watershed studies. Right, and right. so, um, which never before had the model been applied other than maybe a couple linking hill slopes and channels a little okay. bit. And so all we right. actually took some of the things we were learning and expanded that out into a watershed based model. And for a while, a lot of the GIS growing up and, and a lot of stuff early on was ArcView, mm-hmm. ArcGIS, mm-hmm. and all these. And and so some of these web tool, there's people that actually tied in. Chris Rentschler is, you know, uh, developed this GeoWeb tool. So actually, well, we can use web in a geospatial mm-hmm. like G- ArcGIS. It got to the point, every time ArcGIS updated, you needed to update the code to, to make <laughs> right. web work uh-huh. on it. And uh-huh. so we said, man, what if it's just an online watershed interface that mm-hmm. we developed? And so that's what we had some really great programmers at University of Idaho that, I kind of feed ideas and, and they do the magic to, to create right. these uh, tools. So, so now we have this, what we call a web cloud tool. And, and we did publish that in the last year or two here that there's a couple companion papers out in the journal hydrology, really great tool. It looks like Google maps go in on any point in a landscape, um, 
creates a stream network based on the DM, extracts all the soils, data. Um, it, it, then you can break out the hill slopes and channels um, and take some of the parameterization we have for wildfire. We can mm -hmm. upload burn severity maps and then actually predict um, sediment load, um, stream flow. Um, there's actually a wet water quality you're starting to work mm -hmm. with now mm -hmm. that's taking the, the, the SWAT model algorithms and put in to do water okay. quality. And that kind of gets at more of the stakeholders. They really right. want to know the watershed outlet. And uh, particularly um, as we went forward, they did a lot of work in Lake Tahoe. Lake mm -hmm. Tahoe was this place, this great icon. Back in the 60s, you could see down into the water 110 feet. Mm -hmm. It gradually has declined. Mm -hmm. So now 50, 60 feet. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, Lake Tahoe had never been logged before. I guess the oh. story goes Mark Twain was the last one that actually uh, had a major wildfire. He had a campfire, got out of control back <laughs> in the late 1800s. Uh -huh. <laughs> Nothing had been gone in there. Uh -huh. And then all of a sudden, wildfires started showing up. They had a couple wildfires in Tahoe, and they said, wow, if we had a lot of sediment coming to our lake, mm -hmm. this could really dra drastically reduce the quality of the lake. And mm -hmm. so then this idea of forest thinning came mm -hmm. up. Okay, should we go in and thin this forest? And then right. where should we thin it? And our watershed tools were actually really well geared to forest thinning. Mm -hmm. And and then we could start doing uh, comparisons between forest thinning and the do-nothing of leaving it there. And what if there's a wildfire every 20 years? Is that better than thinning every right. 10 to 15 years? Um, right. And so that was kind of got into this web cloud and mm -hmm. the applications. And um, we went from Tahoe now to we work with Seattle quite a bit. The Cedar River watershed where you get all the drinking water from is from an unfiltered water source mm -hmm. um, in, in Seattle. And the, they are very concerned about the wildfire scenario. Um, we have some, NASA is actually giving us funding now to actually use more of their geospatial products to help develop these decision support tools to almost, you could almost do a, a real time uh, early warning system type of uh, a tool. And so taking these models and, um, uh, yeah, use them as a watershed tool uh, uh, to make informed decisions. So mm -hmm. um, uh, we have now a European version of it, actually hmm. going to Spain next week. Um, and we can go in there and actually run watersheds um, in Spain. We actually, colleagues in Portugal are running. Australia has a, uh, some major fires. We have an Australian right. version of the tool now. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's great to see how it's expanding and um, uh, the applications of that tool in particular. That's super cool. Um, yeah, that's exciting to be able to see that, especially going from something like you said, going from, you know, uh, ArcGIS, which I used, you know, forever ago. Um, and now just being able to have, yeah, here a couple clicks, yeah. or we're just going to go online a couple clicks and we're going to be able to see what we, we want to see. And so, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's super fascinating. I know. And, uh, when I started my master's, I did it on grass. So it was mm. grass. Uh, mm. Now it's QGIS now, uh -huh. but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's, at least that one's free. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, is there, are there any other um, projects you'd like to, to chat about? Any other things you'd like to, to share with our audience? Yeah, I guess the, the, the one interesting thing ties back to the wildfire and we've been working with you guys on as well is kind of looking at the impacts of wildfire mm -hmm. on soil water retention and right. we're using some of the yeah. high prop and um, to look at, um, you know, how does that uh, impact itself? Uh, how do we see the burns affect the carbon, which affects the, the retention properties? Mm -hmm. The soil texture even changes after wildfire. Right. It's right. really crazy. And we're actually doing tying that with nutrients as well, phosphorus, how is it sorbed with phosphorus? Mm -hmm. And so that's another kind of a, a lot of uh, use lab-based 
uh, or kind of we actually burning soils with propane heaters out in landscapes mm. right now and taking samples from that's as great. a controlled environment. Yeah. And huh. so, um, yeah, so that's another angle that we've done uh-huh. um, on trying to understand wildfire. So, yeah, a lot of projects, a lot of different yeah, things you can go say. in. <laughs> and especially, I mean, with those uh, wildfire projects, I mean, that's super important nowadays as we're dealing. I mean, this is a whole other thing when you're talking about modeling climate variability and, and those kinds of impacts. Um, but, yeah, definitely being able to to see pre and post fire and those kind of landscape managements and, and how we can mitigate some of those risks there. Is, yeah. yeah, super important nowadays. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's that's all of the time great. we have today. So thank you for stopping by, Aaron. It's been a great discussion. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time on We Measure the World. <laughs>